Hey friends, I'm not sure why you listen to this podcast, what it is that you get from me, but if I had to have a guess about what it is that resonates with people the most from this unhindered podcast, I think it would be my level of certainty. I think that's what you need from me, that you need a weekly dose of certainty, you need to be reminded that if you want to free yourself from insecurity, you can, that it really is that simple. Every day I'm, I have conversations with people who do change and people who don't, people who get scared and run away, people who face the fear and lean in, people who find there is an impossible impasse and get stuck, people who find there's an impossible impasse and move in. And through it all, I remain certain, I remain unequivocal, unyielding, unrelentless that insecurity is a solvable problem. In fact, not only can you solve it, you must. For the sake of the world, you must. It's your most important adult work. And it's a predictable problem. And that also is what you get from me, and I'm sure it's what resonates there the precision, the nuance, the subtlety, the fine-tuning of language around precision. Uh, The number of people who've messaged me after that last episode about six words to summarize your whole life. Um, If you follow my socials, you may have seen me. I I shared an email that someone sent me and they said, uh, Jamin, that podcast was the most disturbing thing I've ever listened to. I could not even stand up. That knocked me off my feet. The emperor uh, does not have clothes on, and I've seen that and it's terrifying and it is i said i said back um well look the truth will set you free but not before it scares the shit out of you first and that is the nature of stepping into the light it's why most people don't but my certainty is but if you want to you can and you won't die you won't die you, you can do this you are stronger than you think and don't let me put air in your tires and flatter you and lull you into a false sense of security my certainty is that this is a solvable problem no matter what anyone else thinks i know that it is solvable in the book i've just finished writing waiting for a publishing process to begin i i take down a few different thought leaders who um i disagree with who i think deserve to be critiqued and to be deconstructed because i think they're wrong now you can be overly negative and that doesn't win you any fans and it's not very kind and i think the energy of it is probably a bit off-putting to rail against what you don't like Um, but nevertheless it is important to deconstruct and to call out stuff that isn't effective and so when it comes to certainty i think that the psychology trade profession career cannot give certainty I, i think people go looking for certainty they would love to know that it is possible to find their way through that being a human is so hard that there must be a way to ease their pain to uh, get out of their suffering and they go looking for psychologists to help them or even psychiatrists i think um, the certainty of an escape is more what you're looking for when you go to a psychiatrist you've resigned yourself to the fact that you're broken and your only hope is to be medicated psychologists have this strange narrative that change is possible but well not really but we'll say it is but everybody knows it's not so let's just pretend it is but we both know it's not
So how about we do that? And we'll have this dance where you come and tell me how ready you are for change and I'll tell you what to do to change. We both know that no one's doing any changing here. And uh, we know that these relationships will go on for years too, by the way, and that'll just keep this whole thing going. And you'll get a bit of kudos social credit out of saying you're in therapy and I'll have an endless source of clients because people don't come out of this. Um, But I, I think that's incredibly unkind, very unprofessional, a terrible thing to do to a human being. I think it weakens heroes every day. I think psychologists cannot help you. That's a big claim. I was about to apologise, but how could I apologise? Like, if I'm apologising, I shouldn't be saying it. No, I I do mean it. I think um, psychologists have a lot to answer for. And and here's my main problem with psychologists. And happy for any psychologist to take exception with me around this and to tell me I'm wrong. I'd love it if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. I, I think you cannot give certainty if you have not embodied the thing that you are helping someone else work through. And as far as I can tell, there is no prerequisite for any kind of embodiment within the psychology profession. In fact, many people I know who've gone down that path to train that uh, have uh, unconsciously or consciously been drawn to that as a way of not facing the thing that they find too hard for themselves. That if they can find their own value and significance in helping others, then that will prop them up and give them security. Then they can identify as a rescuer, as the hero. But the Karpman drama triangle says that uh, rescuers need victims. Victims need rescuers and both of them need persecutors. And so this drama dance continues while ever you show up as a rescuer. You, you cannot actually help people because they stop being victims. And if they stop being victims, then you're out of a job. So the whole thing is very dysfunctional. Uh, so to be trained as a psychologist is to learn an academic process, to learn a theoretical set of ideas about how we work, why we do what we do, and to help a person to think about this. Um, But there is no prerequisite to have applied any or all of that to your own situation. You're insulated by the certificate on the wall, by the governing body, by the desk between you and the client. And that's supposed to be useful. Uh, Whereas the coaching space, which is not regulated, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and there are many coaches who do not embody their work, but I would say it is almost impossible, if not actually impossible, to survive as a life coach, of which there are very few. Most of the people who I studied with did not last as life coaches, transitioned into either coaching coaches and some kind of pyramid marketing scheme, or some kind of business coaching or sales coaching or marketing coaching, all of which is great, but that's not where they started. And I would say it's because it's too hard. And the hardest thing about being a coach is there's nowhere to hide because like the certificate doesn't mean anything. There is no governing body qualifying me saying, I endorse you to do what you do. I have to endorse myself and my endorsement is my life. So that means I have to show up. I have to say, watch me, I'll show you and watch me for years before you realize I'm not full of shit. And and then you'll find certainty from me that's what you want you are craving certainty and you're going to have to watch long and hard you're going to have to try and discredit you have to try and find holes you're going to have to try and find uh, why i am not embodied and why this won't work for you but i think that's why people keep coming back because they crave certainty and they find certainty here so uh, hear it again from me listen to my voice and as you listen to my voice hear your own voice my certainty gives you permission to be certain that's its value you know deep down 
that this must be solvable because what I say makes sense. The whole structure of your insecurity is built on a work of fiction, on an assumption, on a mistake, on a misunderstanding. That makes it a solvable problem. Now, I, I want to give you a couple of audio bites from a client I'm working with at the moment who has uh, allowed me to uh, share this with you. And I think it's so useful to hear someone wrestling with this stuff because you cannot help but try it on yourself. So as you're listening, try your own logic. See, see how she's going, see where you would go and see if you can see the one thing that she misses. So she'll ask me a question and around you know how to break free from what she's observed and she assumes she's gone all the way down to naming the fear um, but she hasn't so see if you can guess what the fear actually is and uh, and it is a test and there is a clear answer to the test because uh, you might have heard me say this before but you will know that you have accurately described the problem when it feels simple and hard not complicated and unique so this relates to naming the fear because when people name fear they often name it at a level of, of abstraction that's unsolvable I'm afraid of failing I'm afraid of being rejected I'm afraid of what others will think of me all those things well what do you if that's it what are you supposed to do with that it is how I feel and it is a real possibility I might fail I might be rejected I might not be liked okay well great then don't do anything hide run you know cover compensate that's not solvable so uh, yeah I'll, I'll play this audio for you and see what you think Hey, Damon, I wanted to send you this message to see see what kind of clarity and truth bombs and maybe pointing me in the right direction. A couple of things that I've realized um, is I thought that I wasn't playing the victim card or in the victim role because I thought I had overcome that sort of state of mind and this weekend I had I was on call for work and I was on call on the night shift and I like to go to bed early and wake up early I hate being up in the middle of the night if it has to be at work and um the one night I didn't want to get called in because I had to work in the morning. I, I had to work that next day, so I thought if I don't, if I get called in tonight, that's going to really suck. And I need to, because I need to get up and work in the morning. And I did get called in, of course, that night because that was the one thing I was really afraid of and didn't want to happen. <laughs> And so I was in this mindset of, um, why do I have to be up in the middle of the night? And this is this, you know, just kind of victim status mode. And so I got called in and the patient I had to take care of immediately after getting called in because it was a confused guy. The other nurse, there's only two nurses on, um, and on the night shift at, on the unit that I work because we do surgery and so it's just emergency stuff. But so he was taking care of a bleeding patient. I was, and he was like, 
when I got in, he was like, you need to take care of the confused guy. So I was taking care of the confused guy. And so this was um, an 86-year-old, 88, 87, somewhere. Anyway, in his 80s, um, confused. And he just had surgery because he broke his hip. And he was trying to get out of bed. Um, super restless. I, I couldn't keep any monitors on him and sweet, sweet, confused guy, not an angry, confused guy, but a sweet, confused guy. And he, anesthesia kind of, um, I like to observe people, but anesthesia really kind of, uh, you know, kind of unveils what's underneath. (laughs) And this guy, this old man kept saying he was confused and for he couldn't he had no idea where he was at um and he kept saying oh i'm just worthless i'm i'm worthless you know what's wrong with me it's because i'm worthless oh and i'm messy oh did i mess that up and i yes of course i did because i'm a mess up and i'm worthless and i mess things up and i was um talking to him you know, and he would get clarity briefly about what's going on and he would sit still and stop trying to get out of bed and stop trying to pull that stuff. <laughs> and then um, he would say, oh, yes, okay, I got it. I got it. And two seconds later, he would start doing exactly what <laughs> what I, we agreed upon that he understood. And he would start, you know, grabbing that stuff and trying to get out of bed and trying to remove his dressing and not you know taking off his monitors and then we would we would stop and we would get clarity on what was going on and he and then every time he would do it he would say you know why it's because I'm worthless and I'm always making a mess of things and I'm always making this worse and then he would get clarity we'd get clarity and so we were stuck in this loop and it it and it made me realize i'm just stuck in this loop of based on my underlying beliefs so the behavior comes out of the belief he couldn't stop what he was doing because his underlying belief was that he was uh no good and he was worthless so of course he's going to keep messing with stuff and you know, harming himself and potentially falling out of bed and breaking his hip again or the other hip. And because his underlining belief was he's no good and he's always messing everything up. And we were just stuck in this loop of belief and behavior, belief and behavior, belief and behavior. And I thought, wow, what a reflection, you know, what a reflection of, of me, you know, and probably humans in general, um, stuck in this loop. And that night I also was trying to get other people to care that I had to be back in the morning (laughs) and nobody cared. And I thought, why is nobody caring about this? And I thought, well, because it's none of, it's not their issue and it's not their problem. And I'm the one that created this. This is the experience that I'm living because I created this. And I so badly wanted somebody to care that I had to work in the morning and to, um, you know, come to my rescue to let me go home so I could actually sleep. And I didn't realize how much 
I am in this like somebody else fix it, this victim state, um, which brings me to I'm I'm I can't quite figure out why this money block thing, you know, and I've been asking myself, like, what's the event? But what I've been noticing, you know, like I said, um, you know, I have this underlining fear that if I make money from something that I do on my own, anything entrepreneurial and I get money for it, it's the underlining belief is that I'm going to hurt somebody, that it will hurt them. And when you kind of break that down even more, I have, I don't have um, very many friends, but I did have three friends and um, three girlfriends. And through this last, you know, almost two years of me doing, trying some entrepreneurial stuff and network marketing and I always approach, you know, my friends, you know, they're what they call your warm market. Obviously, you know that, (laughs) but, um, and they've always said no to anything that I've suggested, um, products or financial services. And we don't, I don't talk to any of them anymore because I have this underlining belief that I hurt them. I hurt them by approaching them with opportunities, um, And so, of course, they don't want to be my friend anymore because I approached them with something that could potentially make me money so that would hurt them. So, of course, I just hurt them. And it even boils down to the fact that um, I even turn it into what I've noticed is I've even turned it on to the things that I'm trying to sell or um, the services. It will like those services are dangerous, you know? So even though I use the products and the services and they've helped me tremendously, um, you know, so say with my superfoods, um, if I got, you know, somebody bought them from me, well, maybe they would detox too fast. Maybe they would make their stomach upset and those products aren't going to be good for anybody, you know, cause nobody's, you know, they might experience discomfort if again, you know, having a rush of highly incredible foods come into your body, maybe they it would upset their body. So these products are dangerous, even though They've helped me in so many ways, (laughs) energy-wise, caffeine-wise, you know, and I use them every day. Same with the financial stuff. It's really brought me into this space of understanding finances and clarity around that (laughs) and moving my money into places that will grow. But yet, I think... Um, that those services would hurt somebody, you know? And what if the, you know, products that I'm offering, you know, what's their security? And so if I, what if, you know, I don't know, I'm just twisting it in my mind that that would ultimately hurt people, even though it could make them money, which is hilarious. But no, no, I wouldn't want to, you know, move anybody's money into something that would make them more money because 
what if it didn't? Now that I'm talking this out, I'm like, this isn't making any sense at all. But I even, I just turn it on the products. All oh, the products are also bad and they would hurt them. And so ultimately it comes down to the fact that whatever comes from me will hurt somebody. So anything that I put out will hurt somebody. Why do I feel that what comes from me will hurt other people is the question. <laughs> And I haven't come to that event. I haven't come to anything, but I've just becoming more acutely aware of my underlining belief and it's getting really painful. So maybe this means that I'm at the like brink of a breakthrough of discovering what this event was, but it ultimately comes to down to me hurting somebody. <laughs> what comes through me will hurt others. And I'm not sure why. Um, and I'm expecting you to drop some um, awesome truth bombs on me with not holding back. Um, I'll give you another example. So in my agent training, there's a gentleman in there um, who was talking about how he was in a men's group on Facebook and he decided to put a post out there, a very passionate post, um, a, around financial services because he has this intention of he's a African-American gentleman, black man, and he he's extraordinarily passionate about um, black men um, stepping up and taking care of their kids, being a father first and foremost, and taking care of their family and not leaving it to the government or like he says to mama or grandmother you know because a lot of black culture in his description you know it falls on the women and he's really calling out black men to stand up and he's very passionate about it he put a post in a private facebook group that he's in um the you know black men's locker room where they get super intimate about their feelings, their thoughts, their lives, everything. And he put a post in there to um, recruit members on his team for financial services. And when he was talking about it initially, I thought, oh my God, how can he do that? He's taking advantage of an intimate group, a vulnerable group. And then as he's describing it and as he read the post, it's like, I believe him and I actually know him. And he's his... Um, he trusts himself and he actually it's coming from a place of he's wants to sh up actually improve other people's lives so my initial reaction to that was like oh my gosh he's just again there's another example of people taking advantage of other people and you know in vulnerable group you know where they're really vulnerable and and then as he went on, I was like, wait, he's a man of his word. He really is. I mean, his follow through, his commitment, his passion, his language is to the T impeccable. And he follows it up with action and belief. And there's a different energy about it. And I was like, actually, oh my God, he's actually potentially offering to change people's lives because anybody that would be close to him, working with him, would be infused with that sort of, um, what do you, how do you, what would you say? Infused with that 
commitment to self and commitment to uplifting and ultimately he trusts himself absolutely and he's trust that he actually could help anyone that wants to come on this journey maybe anyway it's just another example this is a long message thank you for listening and uh yeah just (sighs) this is a really long message if you have time just what do you i'm just i'm i'm needing I guess I'm just saying I'm needy. I'm not needy. <laughs> what 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 are your thoughts on that? Like, um, I'm trying to be impeccable with my words. Yeah, and I understand. I'm also understanding how my language is really affecting my state as well, and um, being impeccable with the words. So I'm just gonna hit you with all of that. That was a lot. I appreciate you for listening and anything insights would be appreciated. Okay. Bye. Okay. So did you pick it up? Her most precise language was, I'm afraid that I will hurt others, that what I will do will hurt others. It will take value away. I'm afraid. That's my experience. I feel like it's happened before. That's the most precise I can be. So is it solvable at that level? No, it's not. No way in the world because there's evidence, it seems true, it's always possible that it could actually happen. So there'll always be a nervousness and, a, and an eventual self-sabotage around selling while ever that level of abstraction is how she sees the problem. So it's always one level deeper. It's the personal implications. And try this on for yourself. Named must your fear be before banish it you can, but you have to name it as precisely as, as is actually possible. So the deepest fear is not that she will hurt people. It's that if she did something that someone else felt hurt them, what would that say about her? What would that confirm to be true? Now we're going somewhere. Now we're getting back to her accusation that that she's bad. There's something really bad about her because what kind of a person hurts someone? What kind of a person produces something that out of their being comes something that hurts others? A bad person. So her accusation around being bad would be confirmed if something she does ends up hurting others. That's what she's afraid of. Her worst accusation about herself being confirmed by the world. And by the way, that's not just what she's afraid of. That's what everyone is afraid of. That is what you are afraid of. And I am certain. And my certainty gives you permission to be certain. And if you are certain, then you will hold the space until you decide whether that accusation was true or whether it was false. Here's one more audio clip from her. And this one's a little harder to hear, but it's so valuable. I thought you'd be able to put up with a bit of background noise to hear this. And so... Um, when you realize what you're actually afraid of, your worst accusation being confirmed, you, you've already agreed that it's true and you've covered and compensated, run and hid, created a strategy and a system to make sure no one else ever finds that it's true. So your work will be to go back into that experience where you first decided there was a problem and see if it was true. Now, uh, I shared this on a few of my social platforms a couple of weeks ago that it is so easy I think I may have spoken about it on the podcast sometimes I forget what I said last week I'm really sorry if I repeat myself I assume I do in fact I assume I'm saying the same thing every week um, but people keep listening so uh, maybe I say it slightly differently but I pretty much am saying exactly the same thing every week uh, so what I said specifically was 
It's so easy to get stuck in the traumatic moments of your teenage years and young adult life and assume that that must be the real stuff that has to be reviewed because it's so messy and hurtful and people have made some big mistakes in those years and it's sometimes feels so big and there's so much shame and embarrassment associated with those experiences that how in the world are you ever going to get through them but that's not the stuff to review that's misdirection that's there that's the system that you built to cover and compensate you can't review that it's too much stuff you must go back before that to the events that are far easier to write off because they seem innocuous like how, how could that be the thing that ruined my whole life there's been much much worse that's happened Uh, But the structure of things is this. You set a precedent for yourself, which creates a map of the world, forms a bias, you become certain. And then because of that bias, you filter all future experiences through that to find more evidence that you're right. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yeah, of course, things get worse and you do things that are in line with what you think is wrong and it does confirm what you thought was true. But if you never had agreed to it in the first place, then you would have a very different experience. So your job is to go through all the messy stuff back to the very first time, the one that you've probably already written off that you thought, ah, oh, that was just a kid, that's that's nothing. No, that's what you're looking for, that's the stuff. So have a listen to how she thinks about her experiences of some uh, yeah, really painful and upsetting and surprising events from her childhood and just hear the tone of her voice when it feels like a solvable problem had been thinking about like this event and the dance and the basketball were significant and you're totally right everything that happened after that was because I already made this agreement that I'm not good enough and so of course all of them these very traumatic things are going to happen after that and those are the things I've been always focused on and like not able to get over because I didn't go back to these initial events and I was talking to my inner self, my child, and it still felt like there was something else and it hit me. It totally hit me. I figured out the initial event where I made the agreement that I'm not good enough and it makes complete sense when i was like six years old i was in elementary school and i you know loved performing i loved dancing i idolized like these gem dolls and there was a cartoon and they would sing and i would pretend to sing and i just wanted to be a performer because I knew I was like this complete rock star (laughs) and um, I used to like sing and perform and like do all this stuff for my mom and do shows for her and so when I was in elementary we had music class and there was a substitute teacher in one day and he was an old guy and he decided for the music class Um, whoever wanted to come up to the front of the class and sing he would play the piano and we were singing Amazing Grace and so you know all these kids are raising their hands because they wanted to go up he would play the piano and they would get to sing a solo and I was like oh my gosh this is my chance I'm a rock star I already know it 
and he wouldn't pick me. It took him forever to pick me. He finally picked me and I was the last one to get picked to come up and sing Amazing Grace while he played the piano. And I got amazing and halfway into singing Grace and he stopped me and he was like, oh, you're no good, go sit down. <laughs> and so I'm laughing at myself and I just caught myself, but I was like shocked. I was like, he let everybody else go up there and stand up and sing the entire song. And he wouldn't even let me get two full words out and stopped me and said, I'm not no good and go sit down. And so I went home, went to my room and you know, we had cassette tapes back then. And I have these blank cassette tapes. I got a blank cassette tape and I started singing and recording myself. And then I played it back and I heard myself sing and I was like, oh my God, he's right. I'm no good. That sounds awful. I am no good. He's right. And my whole life I felt like I haven't had a voice and I haven't been able to like fully express my voice. And that's the event. That's where I decided. And this happened and then I, it was like the next year the dance thing happened. And then um, a couple years later the basketball thing. And this is the event because I literally remember thinking he's right. I am no good. And this right here feels like the triggering event. And I've been talking and going through the apology process with that girl and I'm gonna cry <laughs> right now. Because, and I laughed again, but it's, you're right. Like it's something that you don't really as an adult in your mind, as an adult think that it's significant because you can understand and like it seems silly, but to that little girl, like that was absolutely crushing. It just crushed my soul. And since then, because that was my whole world. And up until that point, I thought I was a superstar. And then there was this, you know, person that said, no, you're not. And then I agreed to it. And so, yeah, that's where it started. And I only now want to protect that girl and show her that we can have a voice. Like, and that is not true. <laughs> that is so false, you know. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I'm, I got, it's just very exciting and it's like making so much sense, you know. And this is a completely solvable problem. I, I believed you partially, but I didn't actually fully believe you that it's a solvable problem until now. Like, it's so solvable. <laughs> I just love you can hear the lightness in someone's voice when it switches from being complicated and unique and overwhelming to just simple and hard it's like huh yeah I could actually solve that yeah of course you could I had a client say um all right so how are we going to fix this thing to me the other day and I said what do you mean fix this thing like it's not broken it's a system that you designed to solve a problem remember so it's working exactly as you set it up to do so uh yeah, what, what do you mean? How are we going to fix this thing? If you would like a different end product, then you have to go back and create a different system. And to do that, then you have to deconstruct the reason why you created this system in the first place. But if you'd like to do that, yeah, of course you can. Um, really simple, straightforward process. Six words, which would summarize the whole setup. 
and agreements the way in, as I explained last week. Look, I wanted to read something to you on this episode that's been really meaningful to me. This comes from Way of the Heart by Greg Bellingham, who has been, I talk about him all the time, as being the person who has had most impact on my life than any other person. And so I'm eternally grateful for the space that he has held for me at certain key moments in my life and the patience he's had and just the skill and uh, the heart. And so um, The Way of the Heart is a book of poems that he's written that's just been released. And poetry hits different than prose because anyone can say what they think as a statement, but can you take someone on a journey by using language in a way that bypasses the front door and comes in the side door? I, I read this poem probably three days ago and it's lingered with me ever since. And so you th- it hits you on one level, you think you understand that, and that, then it percolates and certain languages create images in your mind that expand and take you down certain rabbit holes. So a poem is a lovely, lovely way of um, fertilizing thought in your brain and in your heart. So let me read this one to you and uh, yeah, see what, see what percolates for you, see how it resonates and stays with you. So this is uh, poem 34. Behaviour flows from within. On a high mountain lookout where they could trace their earlier journey up the mountain and faintly see in the distance the town that they had left behind, the old sage shared a story with them. A woodcutter came home from his labour in the forest. With him he brought an old pine cone, a little bit of rustic nature to adorn the mantle for a season. His first child saw the cone and held it to the light. And she saw there were patterns. One, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, thirty-four. A rhythmic numerical sequence that followed the swell and taper of the cone. For her it was pure maths, ordered formula, the perception of complex patterns. Later another child held the cone to his nose and inhaled deeply. He felt as though he had been transported into the forest depths a world of rich fragrance, earthy, clean and crisp. For him, it was pure perfume, a perception of natural beauty. At last, his youngest child came across the cone and gripped it in her tiny hand suddenly, uh, gripped it in her tiny hand and suddenly she threw it, hurling it like a bullet launched from a rifle, a toy, a weapon, a tool. For her, it was a usable instrument, the perception of usefulness. This is how it is with all people. Each one interprets the world for themselves. So behaviors, so behavior flows from their own inner perception. Will one become and behave as a scientist, deciphering complex mysteries? The other a perfumer, filling the world with rich scent as he extracts oils? The youngest an industrialist, meeting our needs with many practical implements? Each one's own behavior is in their own. Sorry, each one's own behavior is their own. It follows naturally the orientation of their essence. When we prefer another's perception over our own hearts, we begin walking in darkness. Many people live in that darkness, spending their days as strangers to their own being. The image of the pycone is on the page with the words Fibonacci, fragrance, firepower. Beautiful. 
I'll uh, put a link to that book in the show notes too if you'd like to get yourself a copy. Um, well, look, that's all for me today. Oh, actually, one more thing. Um, the jockey story I told last time tickled a few people's funny bones. And it was a real story, but I, it, it gets better because one bit of information I didn't tell you last week was um, I found out in the days after the high five that this young little leprechaun was 25 years old, had a one-year-old son, and had actually spent six months in the penitentiary for stealing a bobcat. Ah, dear. (laughs) All's well that ends well, though. That's what I'll say. It all uh, was very innocent. And, uh, yeah, look, maybe we dodged a bullet on that one. So with that note, I'll sign off. I'll talk to you next week.